Well, here we are again. It is Saturday afternoon. I'm looking at empty chairs in an empty room except for Bree and Aaron and Joshua Walker. And presumably, when you're listening to this, it might be Sunday morning, and you might be sitting at home once again. Now, even though this feels very strange and feels very weird, and we want this to be over sooner rather than later, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. And even under these extraordinary and unexpected circumstances, when we physically can't meet together, the leaders of our church feel that we still have a responsibility to care for our people spiritually. And one of the biggest ways we do that every week is by teaching God's word to you. When we're all healthy, when we're all sick, no matter what the situation might be. So today we finish up Mark chapter 9 and begin Mark chapter 10. Now I will be honest, this week's sermon will probably feel a little bit different than last week's did. By the time we decided to cancel our service last week, my sermon preparation was mostly finished. And I had prepared that sermon under the assumption that we'd all be in church together on Sunday morning like we always are. And so my preparation felt very normal. It ended up being a very normal sermon. But that wasn't the case this week. As I sat at my kitchen table and studied and wrote and thought and prayed and typed, I just kept remembering that this is not going to be a normal Sunday. So, this week's sermon may feel a little different than last week's did. In fact, this sermon may feel a little bit more like a Bible study. And you know, I think that's okay, because I'm convinced that we can't truly replicate the Sunday morning experience this way, even if we wanted to. And I'm not totally sure we should even try to. We can't pretend this is a normal Sunday because it isn't. And because of that, I won't try to treat this like a normal sermon. So we're simply going to read through our text together and get an idea of what God might be teaching us through it. So with the change in venue, change of circumstances, I'd encourage you to follow along as we read and as you hear me talk about these passages. We will start in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. But before we do any reading, let's pray together. As a church. Father, thank you for this time we have together, even though, in a sense, we're not together. Uh, Another week has come and gone, and I'm sure all of us are still getting adjusted to a very different way of life, whether it's a change in work, whether it's a change in school for our kids, uh, whether it's a change in health. uh, All kinds of changes have come and gone uh, over the past 10 days or so. Um, And so, Father, I pray that as we worship you this morning, um, we'll try to do some of the same things we always do. Uh, We're still going to take communion. We're still going to pray. We're still going to hear from your word. Uh, But we also know that this is not normal. And so, Father, I pray that this week, as we maybe got our feet wet last week, uh, maybe this week will go a little more smoothly. Uh, Maybe this week we'll be able to focus on you a little bit better than we did last week. Uh, Maybe we won't be as frazzled as we were last week. And I just pray this time would be productive for us. I pray this time would be glorifying to you, uh, that we would be looking for ways to serve you and glorify you and honor you in these very different situations we find ourselves in, Uh, whether it's with friends or family 
or neighbors or our community. I pray that we would be looking at this time of change and and uncertainty and disruption uh, as opportunities to do and try and accomplish new things. Um, I pray that we would build good habits, uh, as Zach wrote about in his devotional earlier in the week. Uh, I pray that we would use this time to spend more time in your words, spend more time in prayer, uh, spend more time with our families. Uh, Father, I ask that you just help us to do that. And again, I ask that you be with me as I deliver your word. Uh, Again, this all feels different for all of us, but I pray that I would do a good job of teaching your word to these people uh, in the situation we find ourselves in. Again, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you do not change, even though everything we see around us seems to have changed. You are the same. And I pray that would bring us hope and confidence and assurance uh, in the midst of this trial. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we left off at Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus' three closest apostles, Peter, James, and John, hiked up to the top of a mountain with Jesus. And while they were there, they got a short, temporary, but still breathtaking glimpse at Jesus' divine glory. Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Mark said that Jesus' clothes became intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke used the word dazzling to describe Jesus' appearance. Moses and Elijah stood next to him, and God the Father's voice boomed from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now you have to think, what an experience that must have been for these three apostles. And by faith in Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross for our sins, by his resurrection from the dead, we have confidence that one day we too will marvel at that same sight. We too will see Jesus in all his glory and all his majesty. But from that point on in chapter 9, Jesus' apostles continue to stumble. In verses 14 through 29, they are unable to drive a demon out of a young boy due to their lack of faith and their weak prayer. In verses 30 through 32, they don't understand Jesus' second prediction of his suffering, rejection, and death. And they're too scared to even ask for an explanation. This has been a constant theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Even Jesus' closest followers fail to understand who he is and what he's come to do. But that brings us to to chapter 10 today. And as we start reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, pay attention to the tone of Jesus' speech. Because I think if you pay attention, you'll pick up on something as we go. So we're going to bounce around a little bit, starting in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And they, they being Jesus and the apostles, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They knew they were going to be in trouble. Verse 35, and Jesus sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, And servant of all, 
And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now jump ahead to chapter 10, verse 13. And they, they being crowds or people, were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And now back to chapter 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And finally, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now that's like drinking from a fire hose. But ever since Peter's good confession in Mark chapter 8 verse 29... Ever since Jesus' first prediction of his suffering, rejection, and death, you can start to detect a greater intensity in what Jesus is saying and how he's saying it. His words are becoming more extreme, especially those words about cutting off body parts. That is heavy metal Jesus when you get to the Gospels. But let's take a deeper look at some of these words and see what it is that's so radical about them. So starting with verses 33 through 37. In these verses, Jesus completely upends the apostles' worldly understanding of power and status. You can imagine the 13 men walking down the road on the way to Capernaum. Jesus is in front. The 12 are behind. And throughout the entire trip, Jesus can hear them bickering like kids on a playground, fighting over who's the best. But Jesus teaches them that if you want to be 
great. If you want to be first in his kingdom, you must be content to be last in the eyes of the world and its kingdoms. Jesus calls his disciples to service, not a sense of entitlement. He calls them to humility, not pride. He calls them to lowliness, not the constant struggle to be on top. And to illustrate this point, he calls a child to. In the ancient world, children were not exactly associated with power and greatness. Kids were symbols of smallness, dependence, helplessness. And Jesus seems to think that your willingness to receive and serve a lowly child, an act which probably isn't going to get you ahead in the world, that shows whether or not you've understood what he's teaching. So Jesus takes the apostles' worldly understanding of power and status and turns it on its head. But that same worldly understanding of power and status lives on today. We too are just as susceptible to it as the apostles were. We too can find ourselves thinking the same way. But Jesus' followers both then and now are called to something different. We're called to something better. Now sadly, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, indicates that the apostles didn't learn the lesson that Jesus gave them. They rebuke those who brought their children to Jesus for a blessing. The disciples are still in the mindset that they are too important. And Jesus is way too busy to spend time with these worthless, useless, snot-nosed brats. But again, if the disciples want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, they can learn a thing or two from children. Disciples of Christ are called to embrace lowliness rather than competing for worldly greatness. We're called to approach Christ as these children do, knowing that we have nothing to bring to the table, but rather having open hands and simply asking to receive a blessing from him. That's verses 33 through 37. Now look at 38 through 41, where once again the disciples stumble. You know, in this passage, they simply appear self-absorbed. They think that because a stranger is doing mighty works in Jesus' name, but not following them, going around without the twelve's official stamp of approval, then that man should be stopped. But Jesus tells the disciples once again to knock it off. Because with what's about to come their way, the cross outside of Jerusalem, the suffering, the rejection, the death, the disciples are in no position to be picky about who gets to be on their team. And then finally, verses 42 through 50. Jesus says there that if you lead a fellow believer into sin, you are better off drowned. Think about that. Listen to that again. If you lead a fellow believer into sin, you are better off drowned. On top of that, if your own hand, your own foot, your own eye causes you to sin yourself, then chop it off or gouge it out. You're better off maimed, hobbled, or blinded 
than given over to sin and cast into hell. Those are frightening words. They're meant to be frightening. Some throughout church history have taken these words literally. A man named Origen once emasculated himself to try and put an end to his lust. It didn't work. And thankfully, the Council of Nicaea put an end to that, instructed Christians, hey, stop cutting off body parts. The main point of this passage is not to actually cut off your hand or cut off your foot or gouge out your eye. The point is to be vigilant and merciless in our battle against sin. We are to give sin no safe haven in our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and our lives. We are to value holiness so much that we will take drastic measures to put sin to death. Why? Because according to Jesus, we would be better off physically disabled in heaven than able-bodied in hell. And then the passage closes with those confusing words about salt. What does that even mean? Some think those words have to do with sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament. Your Bible may even have a little note at the bottom of the page talking about that. Many offerings were made with salt alongside them as they appeared before God. In the ancient world, salt could also be used to add taste to food, the same way we use it today. Or it could be used to preserve food from spoiling in a world without refrigerators and freezers. It could also be used for destructive purposes. If you burned someone's crop and then salted the field, no crops would grow there again anytime soon. So what does this mean? Well, perhaps it's worth thinking that ultimately, one day, we will all stand before God. And we want to be preserved in that day rather than destroyed. We want to be marked or salted by holiness rather than by sin. Now let's stop and catch our breath for a moment. Because we've already covered a lot of scripture in terms of both length and subject matter. We've talked about power and status. We've talked about humility and pride. We've talked about sin and holiness. In short, you might call these kingdom attitudes. Jesus' apostles and all the believers who follow in their footsteps, people like us, are called to look at life differently. We're called to think differently. And as we see moving forward, we're called to live differently. I think you can probably see what I meant in Jesus' words becoming a little more intense, a little more extreme. But that tone only continues in chapter 10. So reading chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, 
he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Pharisees come to test Jesus. They're not coming to him looking to learn. They're coming to him with impure motives. And they ask him a very difficult, very controversial question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What makes this question so difficult is the Pharisees have designed it to try to set Jesus against Moses. They're trying to set Jesus against the law of God, which Jesus claims to have come to fulfill. Now, divorce was common in the Roman world. Husbands and wives could easily divorce their spouses. Judaism had historically been opposed to it, though men sometimes got away with it more easily than women. Some Jewish rabbis even debated whether or not a man could lawfully divorce his wife for something as trivial as burning his toast. Now, the Pharisees' question ultimately comes back to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. In that passage, Moses seems to say that if a woman finds no favor in her husband's eyes, or if the husband finds some indecency in her, then that means he's allowed to divorce her. But instead of falling into Jesus, into the Pharisees' trap, Jesus skillfully redirects the conversation. Jesus makes it clear that Moses allowed divorce under limited circumstances. It wasn't something to be celebrated. And the circumstances were not to be expanded to make marriage and divorce a free-for-all, like over burnt toast. The words in God's law about divorce were a sad but necessary concession to sinful people. Because we are sinners, we are more than capable of violating God's covenant of marriage. And thus, under certain circumstances, divorce might be allowed. The founding father, James Madison, famously wrote that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Well, in the same way, if humans were not sinners, no laws about divorce would be necessary. But how does Jesus redirect the conversation? Well, he turns the Pharisees' eyes to God's original design for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. Male and female are joined together as one flesh in the covenant of marriage. And this covenant is not to be broken. That's the good and original plan. That's what God's holy people have always been called to pursue. So a marriage between two of God's people, except in the case of death, does not end without heinous sin on the part of one or both people. Now, there are exceptions that Scripture makes clear. 
In Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus adds that divorce may be allowed in the case of adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds the scenario of a believer being abandoned by their unbelieving spouse as an exception where divorce may be allowed. Paul says that believing spouse would be no longer bound. But even in these clear-cut cases, divorce is still not the ideal. It may be allowed, but it is never celebrated. Again, these are extreme words. These are intense words that many people in Jesus' day and age would have been shocked by. Apparently, the disciples were shocked by it because they ask him about it again. They ask him, Jesus, are you sure you meant what you said? Can you repeat that? Because that seems pretty strict. But that's what Jesus says. He makes it clear. Now, jumping ahead to verse 17, where Jesus again makes some pretty extreme demands. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Part of the reason they were amazed is that in their day and age, it was often assumed that Material wealth, material riches, they were the number one indicator of special blessing from God. So they are totally floored by Jesus' words that a rich person will have a difficult time entering the kingdom of God. That seems totally contrary to all of their preconceived notions. Continuing, verse 24. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything. And followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, 
and the last first. So in this final passage, Jesus is approached by that rich young man. Now, unlike the Pharisees with their question about divorce, the rich man appears to have good intentions. But he asked the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus loves him. Jesus humors him. He points him to the Old Testament law, but the man insists that he's got that down. So Jesus challenges him to sell everything he owns, give it to the poor, and follow him. Sadly, the man declines. The famous poet Dante, the Dante he wrote, the Inferno and the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. Dante refers to this as the great refusal. The great refusal. This rich young man is the living embodiment of Jesus' warning in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. He's forced to choose between two masters, God and money, and he chooses his money. This rich young man is the polar opposite of the two men in Jesus' parables in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Those two men gave up everything they had once they found the field they always wanted, the pearl of great price. But this man holds on to everything he has and walks away from the thing he says he wanted so bad. He walks away from God's kingdom. Now, many have interpreted this story as a teaching against idols of many different forms. We're challenged to identify what the one thing is that we refuse to give up if Jesus commanded us to. And we're convicted to let go of it. Now, there's certainly some value in reading this passage that way. We all have our idols, and yours might look different than mine. And all of us are called to leave them behind and follow Christ. However, we can't read this story, and especially Jesus' words after the rich young man walks away, without paying special attention to the idol of material wealth. According to Jesus, riches have a particularly dangerous allure to them. Wealth is an especially powerful temptation. Jesus' words in verse 25 make the point undeniable. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. But thankfully, Jesus follows those concerning words with these reassuring words. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. A rich man can be saved, but only by God's power not the man's. But, you know, really in the big scheme of things, that's true of all of us. Only by God's power can any man or woman, rich or poor, young or old person be saved. That's true of you. That's true of me. That's true of the rich young man. That's true of the Pharisees. That's true of the children who came to Jesus. That's true of the man going around and casting out demons but not following the twelve. It's true of all of us. And the good news is that God can and has and does save sinners like us 
by his power and his grace. God can and has and does save sinners like us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I know we've read a ton of scripture this morning. So if we fit it all together, what do we come out with? Well, maybe we come out with this. In these passages, Jesus is calling his followers to a totally different way of thinking, a totally different way of living. We're called to have kingdom attitudes and live kingdom lives that look drastically unlike the attitudes and lives of our worldly kingdoms that we see today. We're called to be people of humility, people of service, people of dependence upon God in a world where you often get ahead through ambition, self-promotion, and self-sufficiency. We're called to pursue holiness in a world that is corrupted, marked, salted by sin. And these kingdom attitudes work themselves out in some of the most practical areas of life you can imagine. For example, marriage or even our money. We're called to be faithful to our spouses in a world that has cheapened, distorted, and abandoned altogether God's good design for marriage. We're called to lay up treasures in heaven rather than living for the temporary fool's gold of worldly wealth. Now you might hear this and think, man, I'm not going to get ahead in the world doing these sorts of things, living this sort of way. I'm going to end up last. Well, you might. But we ultimately set our eyes on the kingdom of God, where the last will be first. Now, as we close, I don't think you can help but notice that this is an incredibly high bar for God's people. These sort of extreme demands, these sort of intense teachings. And you know, you're absolutely right. It is a high bar. And your chances of reaching that bar by your own power are about as good as a camel's chances at squeezing through the eye of a needle. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says that to enter the kingdom of heaven, his disciples' righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The Pharisees were considered the most righteous people around. So if that's the standard for entering the kingdom of heaven, then we're all in trouble. We don't meet that bar. A few verses later, in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't think any of us would claim that level of achievement. But Jesus, he is perfect. Jesus has met the bar for righteousness. That's because he is both God and man. He is the perfect kingdom person. Because it's his kingdom to begin with. He is without spot, stain, or fault. He is perfectly holy. And we are saved by his broken body and shed blood on the cross through faith. And when we believe in him, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In order that we might actually live like the kingdom people God has declared us to be. 
By the Spirit's power, we're empowered to be the kind of people Jesus called his disciples to be in the verses that we read today. With the Spirit's power, we think and speak and live in these otherworldly ways, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. So may we live like kingdom people. Because that's who the Father has declared us to be. That's who the Son has called us to be. And that's who the Holy Spirit has empowered us to be. Again, thinking like this, acting like this, living like this, may end up with us finishing last in this world. But we fix our eyes on the kingdom of God. Where the last in this world will end up first by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from Christ, even though they are intimidating, even though it's at times a big pill to swallow, talking about the significance of marriage, the sin of divorce, talking in such extreme terms about how we are to view wealth, talking about cutting off hands and cutting off feet and gouging out eyes. This stuff is frightening at moments. But Father, I pray that as we come to these words, as we see exactly what it is that you expect of kingdom people, we wouldn't walk away sad the way the rich young man walked away from Jesus. Rather, we would approach Jesus like those children did, begging for a blessing, knowing that we are not up to this bar that we do not meet this level of righteousness by our power. If this is the standard of the kingdom of heaven, if this is the way of life and the kingdom of God, then by our own power, we have no shot of being citizens in that kingdom. But I pray that as we read these words, as we're humbled by them, we would also be even more amazed by Christ. That Jesus in his divinity and in his humanity perfectly fulfilled these words. He's perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. And it's his life that saves us, not our lives that save us. Now, of course, we ask you to sanctify us. We ask you to fill us with your spirit that we might actually begin to live these things out. That we would have these kingdom attitudes that don't come naturally to us. That we would live like your people in practical ways. Ways like in our marriages. How we spend our money. And I pray that ultimately our righteousness would be produced by your spirit. Not by our blood, sweat, and tears. Not by our efforts to work really hard to be better people. But I pray that we would trust and know and have confidence that righteousness is produced in us by your spirit. You've given us your spirit. And so I pray that we would live like the kingdom people that you've called us to be, slowly but surely, looking more and more like the Christ who has saved us. Again, Lord, thank you for these words. As challenging as they are, as difficult to hear as they might be, as inadequate as we might feel. That points us to Christ. We thank you for him. 
We thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you for your spirit. And Lord, help us to live like kingdom people. We ask this all in Christ's name.